0: Welcome everyone to this special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis and we welcome back a friend of the program, one of our favorite guests, one of our only guests really, Steve Flink, author of the book The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, a tennis hall of famer. Steve, how are you?
1: Good Gil. it's great to be back with you again. Always enjoy talking tennis with you.
0: Yeah, uh, have we done this before this this year in review? I don't think we did this last year. I don't no, think
1: No, no. I, I mean, obviously we've done a lot after majors and after Wimbledon's, but I don't think we've had a chance to recap the year, so this one should be a, a nice new adventure for us.
0: Yeah, it it should. Um it's always fun to to look back and, you know, try to try to come to terms with everything and 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 reconcile basically the last 11 months it is a long season a lot happens what kind of sticks out to me here is you had this year almost in in three chunks you come out federer wins the australian open and it almost feels like things have picked up where they left off from 2017 but then slowly you know then nadal has has a really strong clay court season and then the, the second half of the season, the latter half, Djokovic takes over. It's almost like all three of the big three come into this off season and are kind of happy with their years.
1: I agree, but I, I feel, Gil, a little more so that way toward, especially toward Novak, to some degree toward Rafa. I think Roger has indicated that. He's expressed what you're saying and that he, he looks back on the year, and any time you win a major, you're happy happy you've achieved that and he certainly can look back and be proud of that and, you know, he finishes the year at three in the world, it's it's, it's certainly uh, impressive but I do think he's not terribly happy in his case it was sort of a gradual decline after Australia and then winning, getting to number one and Rotterdam and getting the finals of India as well, he sort of deteriorated the rest of the way, had the disappointing loss at Wimbledon to Anderson from two sets to 11 and then match point in the third and lost 13-11 in the fifth had that loss to Millman at the Open and, and didn't finish the year quite the way he would have wanted. Uh, but Novak has got to be delighted. And Rafa knows it was really just the injury that took him out of the year following the Open. But he can look back on the quality of his play and the nine tournaments that he played and be pretty proud that with playing only nine tournaments, he finishes the year at, at number two.
0: Right. Well, whenever Rafa wasn't withdrawing, he was pretty much winning. For, for Yeah, Roger. absolutely.
1: I mean, it, start, it started late. You know, he had a really kind of started in with the clay, but he had his usual dominance on clay, just one loss to team, and wins his 11th French, and then he was so close at Wimbledon, losing 10-8 in the fifth in the semis to Novak, and had a very good open before the injury kind of ruined his chances against El Potro also in the semifinals, and in between he won in, in Canada in the Masters 1000 event. So his standard was really quite high, and I think actually he played... As well as he did the year before, in some ways you could argue he was even better. But it just, you know, unfortunately for him, he couldn't play after the Open, and that that is destroyed whatever chance he would have had to be number one because Djokovic was so spectacular uh, in the second half. It might it might have been impossible anyway.
0: It's amazing how important that Wimbledon semifinal match was when we look back on the year, and and this was almost. Novak salvaged this year. This is this was all of a sudden the year of Novak. But if that match went the other way, and it almost did, then you could make a strong case that Rafa Nadal really won 2018.
1: It, it would have almost certainly been that way, and because he was, he would have beaten Anderson in the final, just like Djokovic did. I have no doubt about that. Especially mm-hmm. Anderson having played the marathon with Isner, so. I think that uh, yes, Rafa would have had the French and Wimbledon, and regardless of what happened after that, he would have been would have been really really delighted with that season. But that, as you know, Gil, that's the nature of tennis. These excruciatingly close five set matches can turn seasons around. It was just the moment and uh, that that Djokovic needed to recapture his best form, and he knew it could have gone either way, but he he pulled off the triumph. And then from there, I mean, it was, was magnificent. I, I have to say, I don't think he would have lost those two finals at the end, by the way, in Paris and, and London had if it wasn't for the fact that he was battling some kind of a virus there. And he, physically, he was not quite up to par in those last two tournaments, even though he played some great matches in both. Uh, or else I think he would have closed the season in, in even more dominant form. But nevertheless, he was a runaway Number one, and he won the two biggest tournaments in the sport. And yes, you're absolutely right. The Rafa match was the turning point of the year, but look what he made of it. Look what he did after that.
0: Yeah, I want to get. I want to actually get back into the the last three weeks with those Novak finals in, in a little bit. But I, I also want to draw back to Feder real quick in terms of the deterioration and the steady decline. I think we all saw that. But for me, it, it's almost expected at this point. I I almost feel like this happens every year with Roger. And I think just like players have a certain level of endurance over the course of a match, I think players have a, a, a you know, there's a level of endurance that comes with this long season. And Federer, over really a, a long period of time now, I've never felt like he's really brought his tennis to New York. And I've attributed that to his age and and that's the one area where I feel like you see his age kind of come out and his body break down and he can't play his best tennis late in the season
1: yeah that's, those are all very valid points, but i but you have to add to that that the deep disappointment he had at Wimbledon, which he he minimized in terms of any public comments, but to be it was the second time that it happened to him at Wimbledon, you know in his prime years where 2011, he was up two sets to love against Sangha and lost the match in five. And here he is, two sets up on Anderson. Also match point, misses a backhand pass to win in straight and ends up losing 13-11 the fifth. So that, I think, was pretty jarring. He also complained, Gil, in a couple of interviews he made reference to his hand, uh, an issue with his hand that was affecting his forehand. And he said he mentioned it, I know, before Paris he mentioned it. And he, thought, and he said it was okay from Labor Cup started to feel better at Labor Cup, but it bothered him from the grass court season on. But then he also mentioned after London this week. He made another reference to it and said it had still been hindering him somewhat in London. So I don't know how serious that was. And frankly, I wish he hadn't even brought it up at all. But the bottom line is, yeah, age is catching up to him in some ways. And the difference this year, obviously, was the Wimbledon disappointment. Because, yes, you're right. He's had a lot of tough luck at the Open since he last won there. And you know, way back when in, in 2008 against Andy Murray in the finals. But uh, you don't expect that to happen at Wimbledon.
0: I'm kind of glad you talked about the, the, the you mentioned the, the virus with Djokovic. I, I caught a little bit of flack for suggesting that he might have been sick against Verev, But I was I was looking, I was watching these long rallies and there was such a large gap between the, the endurance between Zverev and Djokovic, where Sasha just was in way better shape to, to play the grueling rallies. And I thought, that's not, that can't be right. Djokovic, there must be something going on. With Paris, well, it was you well th- documented. You, could,
1: you sized it up. You were absolutely correct in your perception. And he, he did talk a little bit about after the match. He tries not to do that. In this case, he said for three or four weeks he's been battling something. And I think that the, the, the proof, by the way, and what you, that your observation was spot on, is that he complained after he beat Zarev in the round robin, in the round robin portion, that they asked him about blowing his nose and pulling the handkerchief out of his pocket and what was wrong, and he said, yeah, unfortunately, it's, I've got something going that's not very good. He was vague about it. I don't think he wanted to talk about the specifics, but he had no, he was not making excuses there. He had just won a, a four and one match. But I, I think it caught up to him in the final. And I think the reason it did was the scheduling in London. He always had days off until the weekend. You know how they do it one group on Sunday, the other on Monday, right through the week. Well, finally, he ends up playing Friday against Chilich, Saturday against Anderson, and Sunday against Zarev. And I think the third day in a row was, even though the matches were not long, was really, really kind of exposed his unusual physical frailty in this case because you saw there was no spark in addition to not hanging in the long rallies yeah he wasn't patient he wasn't defending anything like he normally does he'd normally be very happy in those long rallies with Zarev and eventually his defense would win out but it wasn't winning out that day because he didn't have the, the the belief in his physicality and he didn't he couldn't he wasn't able to hit shots on the stretch anything like he normally does and so from four all in the first set as he said he kind of fell apart. You don't break this guy four times in one day when he hasn't lost his serve the entire week. And the reason for that was not really so much the serve itself as the first or second shot following the serve. He just was not as sharp as normal. And, and to Zarev's credit, he took a full measure of it and played beautifully himself.
0: Right, and and down a break in the second set there, the, the fight left him way quicker than, than we're used to seeing. So just to be clear... Oh, no,
1: absolutely. He was very disappointed in the game that he played at 4-all in the first set. It was 30-all, 4-all. is serve pretty routine up until then. Two bad forehand errors in a row cost him the break, and then he he lost some heart after that. That's not like him. And I, I definitely attribute it not to the fact that he didn't want the title badly, but to the fact that his physically he was just not up to par. And he did a good job in the press conference of trying not to harp on that, but you could, you, could, you could see from his comments that he was, he was frustrated and disappointed that he wasn't able to produce his best. And then we can go back to Paris. Look what happened there. Now there, again, scheduling played a role. He played three tough sets with Chilich in the quarters, played that incredible match against Federer on the Saturday that was three hours long and tiebreaker in the third, and then had to play Hatchinoff on Sunday. That's a lot of tennis in three days when you're not feeling your absolute best. And again, you saw him, as he did against Zarev on Sunday, you saw him start to lose patience and rush rush in the rallies in the second set against Hatchinov and try to serve in volley unexpectedly. And it was all kind of born of the fact that he didn't think he could stay in the longer points, that he didn't have his usual stamina. And obviously, that's such a big part of who Djokovic is, is the ability to, you know, to wear you down and to run everything down and to use his defense to turn to offense. He was not able to do that in either of those finals.
0: I agree. So just to be clear, the the last three weeks doesn't have much bearing on your outlook for Djokovic next season in the sense that you know because he didn't run away with, with these titles, it wasn't as strong an end of the year as it could have been. So some people are kind of thinking, oh, well, maybe Djokovic isn't as invincible as we thought he was, but... It sounds like like we're kind of just writing it off to, you know, mostly the illness.
1: I think so. I think so. I really do, because, I mean, if you look at his level, what it was day in and day out, also you have to look at the fact, Gil, that, you know, starting with Queens Club, a final, he wins Wimbledon. He loses in the round of 16 to Sispetus in Canada, but then wins Cincinnati, wins the Open, wins Shanghai, and then final of his last two. So in those last seven, eight events, he missed one final. So I think he's going to be happy about that. You're right. He would have looked absolutely invincible if he'd won Paris and London and closed the year out like that. On the other hand, it keeps him hungry, and I don't think that he's terribly worried. He has great respect for off and how much he's improved, just miss making the top 10 in the world, 11 in the world now. And then you have, he has great respect for Sasha Zverev as well, who consolidated his place, barely missed out on number three in the world, just 35 points behind Roger now. And he, he, uh, Novak definitely respects him, but he'd beaten him in Shanghai. He'd beaten him in the round robin in London. So I don't really believe he's fearful of those younger players, inclu- including Cispetus. So, But there's no. I believe that what you were getting at earlier was a big factor and that Djokovic was diminished by uh, the fact that he was feeling physically frail.
0: One thing one thing that, that does stick out, though, is the performances on the other end of the court against Djokovic. Sasha Zverev came out there and showed us a serve that he had never shown us before, hatching off well, the second you, half you of you the did. year.
1: He, he, yeah, he did. In fairness, I think he served great in the first set of the round robin against Djokovic and against served very well against Federer, too, only broken once. He served really well against Roger. And... Uh, Throughout that first set of the Djokovic round robin match, he was he was serving brilliantly, and then suddenly, though, after having a couple break points on Djokovic's serve at four all, at four or five, Sasha felt the pressure of serving to stay in the set and cracked a little bit, and then you know he just wasn't there mentally in the second set. But yeah, his serve was very impressive to me all week, and up in the 140s and finding the corners. And he's I he's in a little bit of an enigma to me, Gil, in the sense where he showed us what he could do. We saw all sides of him in London, you know, kind of quitting a bit in the round robin against Novak, squeaking out a match with Chilich, but then peaking at the end, played nicely against Isner to clinch his place, and then beats Roger and beats Novak. The question now with him is, are we going to finally see something in the majors? You're 21 years old, approaching 22, and hasn't been out of the quarters of a major yet, and you'd think that best of five would be no issue for him. But he lost two matches this year at the majors, six love and the 5th. Explain that, you know, to Chung in Australia and to Gubas at Wimbledon. 6 love in the fifth. That tells me that mentally, there's sometimes, you know, in some of those matches, he caved a bit. And I hope he'll overcome that with Lendl's help because he, to me, is he's he's a very likely guy to go on and win multiple majors. And this coming year is an important time for him to step up. And I think he's got a, a, a serious chance at winning one major. At, at least getting on the board in 2019 but Australia will be important to sort of set the stage for that and to at least finally get say to the semifinals at least make a semifinal and start building towards something better
0: that's a fun debate i've 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 seen a lot of people have that de- debate after sasha um, won the tour finals will he win a major in 2019 i'm leaning towards no but I do want to ask you, uh, of all the young guys, 21 and under, or you know, you can go up to 22. I believe, uh, Borna Coric is 22, for example. Who do you, what do you make of this crop? Who do you think will will really reign supreme uh, among these guys?
1: Well, that's hard to gauge. I mean, Sveshnikov, it strikes me, uh, he, he's the real deal, and that was a nice win he had over over Novak in Canada, yep. and he, he, you know, he. He's a great player. There's no doubt in my mind about that. He has the mentality. It's a little tough to tell with some of the others. But I do believe, to get back to your point on Sasha, that, yeah, you, 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 you may be right. Maybe he's not quite ready next year, but I think he, he may well be. And I don't think it will happen in Australia or Paris. I don't think he will be quite ready for that. And I'm thinking Wimbledon or the Open, by then he's really put himself in a position where he really believes he can do it and he has the goods to back it up. So I, that's where I'm looking him for him to send, get on the board. One of those two.
0: Seven out of the top 10 players to end the year are 30 and above. I mean, that can't be sustainable, right?
1: You know, you wouldn't think so, Gil. I, it, I don't think so. I think that trend's going to start changing and that a bunch of guys in the low to mid-20s are going to start taking over those spots. And obviously we're not going to see Rogers going to turn 38 next year and you got Rafa, who's going to be 33, and Novak and Andy Murray, 32. You know, they, they, they can't go on forever, right? I do believe Djokovic has got three or four really great years left, though, frankly, with his, his physical frame. And I, I feel he's going to have that long-range durability that we, close to what we've seen from Roger. Rafa's going to go for another year or two, but yes, you're right. The trend's going to go back into the mid-20s, I believe. And I, maybe we won't see too many more years like this one. And also, it's going to be hard for guys like, you know, the the Chiliches to, to, to sustain it. I mean, they're going to have no easy time fending off the the younger generation. Kevin Anderson as well. As great as he was this year, it won't be that easy for him to protect all those points next year and to automatically get to another major final, which he's done the last couple of years with the U.S. Open and, and Wimbledon.
0: Right outside the big three, you have Del Potro, Anderson. Chillich and John Isner at number 10. All those guys are uh, 30 or above. Who do you think?
1: Exactly. And again, again, with all due respect, I don't see John. I don't see John Isner staying in the top 10 next year. Top 20. Absolutely. Top 10. I really doubt it.
0: This is something I have no I have no empirical evidence to back this up. But I think a lot of the times. These guys hit hit thirty. I think of David Ferrer, and I, b- I believe he was the age of thirty-two when he had the best year of his career. It, it almost seems like like they can take a year and and they sort of peak and they maximize their hard work, and then often after that for for these late bloomers, uh, it, it's a it's kind of a, a one-year deal. I know I know for Ferrer, uh, the year I believe he made the French Open final, twenty thirteen. If I'm yeah, not mistaken, yeah. he said, I worked so hard that year and I knew I could never work that hard again.
1: Yeah. So yeah, well, you wonder about a guy days. like him. Obviously, in fairness to, uh, to contrast what David, uh, what Ferrer said, you would never hear that from Rafa Nadal. Right. Uh, you, you, you know, so part <laughs> of it is your mentality, but yeah, he finally hit a wall these last couple of years. And so that's the danger is there for the likes of Kevin Anderson. However, and Isner, but I think that uh, in Kevin's case, his, he I think he can still hang around the top ten next year. Uh, it won't be as you know, even without achieving quite the results he did this year. But there's no doubt with all those guys, they're living on somewhat borrowed time, and they can't count on their bodies year to year. And there can there can be quite a sharp decline from one year to the next at that age.
0: And then it's very interesting just looking at the rankings right now. If you look outside the top. Uh, the top 10, 11 through 16. Oh, besides Fabio Fanini, you have a 22 year old Hatchinov, 22 Borna Chorich, 23 year old Kyle Edmund, 20 year old Tsitsipas, 22 year old Daniil Medvedev. So, so you have these young guys just knocking on the door right outside the top 10 and, and a lot of these older guys trying to hold the fort down. It's very interesting. Yeah,
1: no, Medvedev has got in, in enormous potential. Born a crotch. I'm really impressed with him. He's so studious and professional. And oh, yeah. Driven. Yep. And sometimes can get in his own way through a bit of nerves. And his forehand can go off. But I really like the progress he made this year. I like the fact that every time he gets on the court with Roger... He, you know he seems to think he can beat him or he's right in there he lost in three sets at Indian Wells then beat him on the grass and beat him late in the year against he had two out of two out of three against Roger and I sense that yeah those guys are going to make can make some significant advances in 2019 sispidus and croridge particularly but I think hatchioff love some great stuff at the end of the year yeah he's he's terrific
0: Chorich, great mental, great physical. The the ball striking might lag a little bit behind. That's how I how I see him. But but all these guys. Well,
1: it's, for, it's really the forehand, right? Right. The, right. the backhand's great. great. Yeah, backhand is a great stroke, and yep. the forehand is improved. And sometimes he gets a little too self conscious off the forehand. He's aware that he's missing. He actually seems to slow his swing down. He gets too careful. But I'm not that worried about it. And I think he's he's got an un, very underrated serve. Very good placement on his serve. And uh, and then in Hatchinov's case, he's just a physical. He's kind of a uh, he's very gifted physically, and yeah. he moves extraordinarily well for his size. And he he really destroyed Zareb before he beat Djokovic in in Paris as well. That people forget about that match, but he just destroyed him. So there's some very good signs with him. He I clearly see him in the top ten next year. I agree. Uh, the way the way he the way he wrapped up this one, and I see Sispidis Definitely in the top ten next year.
0: I'm with you on both those guys. Who outside the top, outside the big three, I should say, do you think is most likely to win a major in 2019? My pick is Juan Martín del Potro.
1: I don't. I don't. Try, no. I think it's Zarev. It gets back to Zarev. I mean, obviously at four. I. I, I think. I think Juan Martin, I would love to see it happen. I just. I think that these these gaps, these absences of, you know, these injuries that keep recurring, that it's very hard. I, I, and I, I I don't see him sort of leaping right out and winning the Australian. He may be fresh enough to do it, but I, I don't see it. I think he's going to threaten. I think he's going to be in some, you know, maybe he's back in a semi or another final, but I don't trust it with the number of times his schedule is too disrupted. And, I, boy, would I love to be wrong. I would much rather you call that one right. But I, I see Zarev as, as really the far and away the most likely. On the other hand, he's got to reverse this trend of where he's just not done himself justice at all in the majors, and he can't justify losing six love in the fifth twice and, and yeah. looking as if he's sort of totally lost. And then, on top of that, a very disappointing match, as you probably saw against Kohlschreiber at the U.S. Open. So... I think that he and Lendl will will be discussing this and Ivan will give him plenty of good advice on how to cope with these majors and the pressures and best of five and all of that. And there's no reason at his age. And you you pointed out, I mean, you watch him in a match against Novak when Novak was not up to par physically in London and, you know, you feel like this guy could play six or seven sets. It doesn't make sense to me that he has yet to negotiate best of five with any success.
0: It's... Certainly strange, and he, you know, he hasn't he hasn't really been close yet. That's my problem. Is I I almost feel like he needs to ease himself into having major success. Which well, is he does mostly he does,
1: and that's what that's why I said that I think that it's important that he does well in Australia and right. hopefully in Paris too. And if he's a quarter, if it's, say it's a semi and a quarter or two semis, or where he's at least finally broken, gotten himself in in into the final stages and penultimate round or what. Then I think he sets the stage for something big at Wimbledon or, or the Open, or maybe do very well in both. But uh, I, I think it's, listen, it was one step this year. He worked so hard, won that string of five setters to get to the quarters of the French. That was pretty good. Not good enough, but it was a step. Now he has to really be pushing hard for at least a semi in Australia. And I think if he gets that, lost in let's say he lost in the semis to Novak, or had a good but a good showing at the tournament. That would, I think, propel him.
0: Yeah, he certainly he needs to, he needs to first make, make a semifinal and, and start to feel like, okay, I can do this before he's going to go three rounds further. I think we both agree all of a sudden go three rounds further than he's ever been before. Uh, but it,
1: Well, yeah, but it's true. It's possible. That's just doing it the hard way. Yeah. And I think that he, he feels like Roland Garros was, was, was good, but then, of course, he didn't follow up well at Wimbledon or the Open. Now he has to just. There's no reason he shouldn't do very well in Australia, coming off this end of the year. And I don't really think he thought he was going to win London going in. He certainly would have, wouldn't have thought he was going to win the tournament after he lost it to Djokovic in the round robin. So he's, he's coming off a real high, and now he's got to really, you know, back that up in Melbourne. And there's no reason that he shouldn't. You know, his game matches up pretty well against all the top players. You know, he almost beat Rafa on clay this year. He does beat Djokovic finally at the end of the year. He beats Roger at the end of the year. So he's, he's, he's shown what he can do against all the top players.
0: In a moment, I want to go through with you the uh, Monday Match Analysis Awards, which I did on, on Monday, where uh, I, I gave out certain awards for the year. But first, uh, I feel like there's been a lot of chatter this year, Maybe maybe more than in past years, or maybe it's just recency bias on my part. A lot of rule change chatter, more chatter about best of three versus best of five. You had the ball person incident with Verdasco where people were saying ball people shouldn't handle towels. Um, And then, of course, every year with the uh, next gen uh, finals, you have no lines judges and all of that. And people start to discuss that. If you were were in charge of, of tennis, are there any rule changes you'd make right now?
1: Well, of, of, the very, of the many rules that they experimented with in the last couple of years in the next gen, the one that I think makes far and away the most sense for the regular tour of the ATP World Tour is no let. I think it's almost a no-brainer. Because if you look at most lets, how many times have you, what percentage of lets have you seen where the player, the server will look up at the umpire as if to say, are you serious? That was a let? Where neither player would have even known it. So the the fact that once in a while you might get a bizarre type of let where the ball hangs up and gives the returner a big advantage, so what? It's so rare. Uh, I, I would like to see that's that's the one I would like to see tested at the top level that I believe would get great support among all the top players because they get exasperated with the, the what they call phantom lets.
0: Yeah. So that's I true. Guess
1: that's the first that's the first move I would make.
0: I don't mind that one. I don't mind no ad either, though.
1: Well, no ad, ad, there you're talking about, and, you know, that's been used in college tennis, and I like it for excitement. I think it brings a little bit too much, a a bit of too large an element of luck. I mean, there's certain things I do like about it because it automatically... It moves matches along, and I can see why you're attracted to it because if you, you take away these six, seven, ten deuce games, you know, you're going to reduce the time of matches significantly. From that standpoint, I like it. I don't think the players would be terribly happy about it, the top players. That's just my view. Uh, but uh, the fans would love it. The fans would love it. I could see tr- testing that out in some 250s. Uh-huh. Some ATP 250s to see how it seems to go over maybe even some 500s and see how you know What kind of reception you get from the players who haven't been through it before and then maybe think about introducing it at, at higher levels
0: I don't even like it as a player and I, I want to see it I don't like it as a player because it's incredibly nerve-wracking to yeah, to have course. to face these deciding points and, and nobody likes nerves but I, right, I do right. think I do think it's but no, almost I worth your it.
1: Point. I, I, I understand your point and, and listen, it is also true that the players were not fully prepared for tiebreaks when they were introduced in nineteen seventy. And now they had to deal initially with a nine point tie break, which meant that you could actually have simultaneous set point and simultaneous match point. And it once happened with a big match between two Americans. Cliff Ritchie and Stan Smith at the end of the 1970 season in California came down to literally one point to decide the number one U.S. ranking for the year. And Ritchie won it with a diving volley. Now, they had to go from that original nine-point tiebreak. They quickly switched to the 12 to what we know now. And it is true, Gil, that the players initially were not enamored of the tiebreak, but they did they did adjust. And it could be that they could make a similar adjustment uh, with no ad. I know that Isner wouldn't mind it because... He, you know, he remembers it from college tennis days.
0: So there wasn't win by two. Is is that what I'm hearing in the tiebreak?
1: The original tiebreak was not win by two. No, it was the first to five. You you won five points, but you could win it five points to four. So the serves went two, 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 and three. So if somebody could be serving, say, an Arthur Ashe playing Stan Smith as an example, that, you know, you 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 put them up against each other at the U.S. Open in '72, and again, Ashe could be serving at two four and he'd get to serve the last three points with Smith having the choice of court of which side he wanted to receive from at four points all. But, yes, you could win it by one point. Now, they didn't like that. That was the original sudden-death tiebreak, and it quickly went over to the what we now know is the standard uh, first to seven points winning by two. And it's a fairer, it's fairer because it goes with tradition of the sport you know, of needing to win by two points. And that's what makes the NOAAD a little controversial, is that, again, that, that gets away from winning by two points in an individual game. You, you, you know, it's sudden death every game at deuce. That's Tom. tough. But I do agree with you in the sense that the fans would love that because right. it'd be added, te- game by game, there'd be added tension. It also might force some players, Gil, if you did do it, to bear down extra hard on serve to avoid being put in the position of, of a sudden death point at three points all or deuce, whatever you want to call it. They would, they, it would make them concentrate even harder. So to take that tension away, make sure to, to hold at love or at 15 and, and not be put in any kind of a dicey, tension-packed moment.
0: Well, that was a great history lesson. I did not know that. That's, called, that's why the people get, get their money's worth here. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger.
1: Well, it, it was <laughs> fascinating that, you know, and they it put is, up uh, Jimmy Van Allen, who was the the, the, me, the inventor of the tiebreak, and he used to hold up a red flag waving it for sudden death at that first year when they first used it at the U.S. Open in 1970. I'll give you another interesting tidbit. The next year, Gil, at Wimbledon, as you know, Wimbledon has now decided they're going to finally, because of what happened with Isner and Anderson, they're going to finally go to a tiebreak in the fifth set, but at 12 games all, as I'm sure you know. Now, right. Uh, the uh, originally what Wimbledon did after the US Open had become the first major to use the tiebreak at 6 games all just as it is now is they originally played the tiebreak at 8 games all. They waited till 8 all. And and that quickly disappeared, but I I you know they I think they're kind of stubborn that way. They sometimes feel like they've got to preserve tradition a little bit more than they need to. I thought that that was unnecessary and eventually they thought it was unnecessary and i think the 12 all i feel the same way i feel like why are you, why are you changing it's much better than not having a tie break at all but just play it at 6 all the way you do in every other set cuz what you're basically saying is you're still going to make those guys play an extra set so they're still playing in essence a 6 set mat, match instead of a 5 setter
0: yeah that was the the most logical reaction to the rule in my in my opinion was exactly that is okay well that's not going to do very much that's not going to affect us very often so,
1: yeah, it's not, but also it's, yeah. It, it, it prevents 26 24 in the yeah. fifth. I get it. Yep. It prevents 70 68 in the fifth with Isner and Mahout, but it's still longer than it needs to be, and it's still changing the rule for the final set. And I just feel like just stick with it. It's the same, it should be the same rules for every set. I've always felt that, and I felt that the U.S. Open is the one to get it right. But I am also hoping, Gil, that, that the French and Australian will now follow. There's more pressure on them to stop playing out the final set. Now that Wimbledon yep. has done it, I hope that they will will think seriously about changing their rules as, as soon as possible.
0: I agree. Let's get into this now. The the Monday match analysis awards, okay? The, I'm going to I'm going to read you off off the winners and and we're going to see uh if if we find agreement or if if you feel like s- some guys got snubbed. So player of the year, I think we'll agree on this one, Novak Djokovic. Oh,
1: of course. Of okay.
0: course comeback player of the year juan martin del potro
1: you know I because i couldn't
0: give it to i couldn't the by the way just just to be clear no repeat winners technically it would be joking yeah yeah, as well. yeah
1: exactly exactly because you could make the case obviously that Djokovic, because of where he was and 22 in the world in the spring and everything that happened in the second half of 17 but i agree i think for del potro to get himself back getting in the top five like they're getting back to the finals of the u.s open the semis of the french the quarters of wimbledon he had a terrific year and one indian uh, wells I, as well I'm with you on i'm with you on what's that
0: one and and winning indian wells
1: yeah and winning indian wells indian indian wells and saving match points against federer it was it was a, it was a magnificent campaign for him and unfortunately at the end you know injured but he, yes. he he uh he's a good choice.
0: And breakout player ha- Karen Hatchinoff. I almost called him Harren.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean that was a big big rise to number 11 and it made and and he he just looked so much more confident at the end and so much more stable. Almost took Nadal into a fifth set at the Open. That was one of the best matches of the majors of all year long. Then has the win over Djokovic in Paris, and whether Djokovic being a little physically depleted, it still still was a great effort. So, I think yes, I, I, I'm I'm with you on that too.
0: Matches, oh, first, my bad. Best comeback, Kevin Anderson, Roger Federer, at Wimbledon.
1: Yeah, it's hard to deny it. I mean, you're two you, you you you're two sets to love down, match point down, defending champion, you know, one of the great grass court players, if not the greatest. I'd put Sampras above him, but still. It, it was a it was a phenomenal comeback for Kevin and uh, I, 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 I don't I don't think we, you could top that
0: okay now we have a now we have a top three matches of the year. number three is Nadal over team at the US Open. I'll, I'll okay. read them all and we'll see if one of them got snubbed uh, number two is Nadal over Del Potro in the Wimbledon quarterfinal. and then number one, once again involves Rafa Nadal. Once again at Wimbledon, just goes to show you how strong that tournament was. Is Djokovic over Nadal in the Wimbledon semifinal?
1: Yeah. So you're going with Djokovic and Nadal one. You're going to the Del Potro and Nadal two. Yes. And then and then Nadal and Team three. Yeah. It. I certainly think it's a it's a uh, clear cut choice for one. Uh, there, there's there's no way I I might have put. I might have put in the Nadal team, but no. I think considering the standard that I saw from uh, Del Potro in pushing Rafa to his limits, uh, I, I, I would go along with that. I would go along with that. I'm, I'm not, we're not. We're not having much conflict here. I'm, that, I'm with That's you okay. on all three.
0: All right, good. Uh, best performance goes to Rafa Nadal against Dominic team at the French Open, straight sets victory. So, so that's like most dominant.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, does it have to be a final?
0: No, not necessarily.
1: It, yeah, I, I, I. Um, yeah, I'm inclined. I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, he, had, it, he, it, he played a, a, a. You know, you probably remember Ken was saying he wished it could have gone longer. And he, but, but Rafa, considering that he had lost a team the previous time out, he did this two years in a row now at the French, where he loses yeah. to him prior to Paris and then avenges it in in Roland Garros Uh, and and as great as team is on clay I thought that was a that was pretty majestic stuff and uh, off the top of my head I'm not coming up with a with a with a with a better match or with a better performance
0: now I have a pick for best shot I think it would be pretty wild if if I asked you what do you think the best shot of the year is and we both came up with with the same thing so is there is there one shot this season that you remember as being possibly the best shot? I know this is kind of tough uh, to to think about on the spot because I know I know I had to think about this one for for a second. But let's see if we land on the same shot. If anything sticks out.
1: Well, that's a tough one. That's it a is tough right because nothing's nothing jumping right out at me.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'll give you the tournament. The shot okay, is... Okay, give me the tournament. Yeah, the, the shot's at it's uh, the U.S. Open.
1: It's the U.S. Open. Yep. And it's... Is it in the Nadal team match No.
0: No, it's Roger Federer.
1: Oh, oh, you're talking... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, against Nick Kyrgios.
0: That's right. That's it.
1: Yeah, yeah, around the net post. That was yep. that was pretty spectacular. That was pretty spectacular. And I think what, what's interesting about that is that, you know, he would look like he was coming into great form uh, in that match against Kyrgios. He really destroyed Nick. And then, of course, ended up losing to Millman just a few days later, which was such a shocker, one of the most shocking defeats he's ever had in a major. Uh, but that way, as a moment, as an isolated moment, and the speed, it, it, you know, the alacrity with which he moved on you know to cover that shot wide to his forehand and get to the drop shot and manage yep. to slide it past nick yeah i would i would say that was a pretty magical pretty magical moment in the men's game you know considering uh, how, how spectacular it was
0: and what a segue you just made for me because this is the last award it's best upset and i gave it to john millman
1: yeah it has to be it has to be because i i mean i think the odds were it was stunning so remote Yep. and he, and also remember, it was another one of those Federer matches that got away from him because not only did he win the first set, but he's serving for the second. And he's up forty fifteen, double set point, accepts to love up, and loses his serve, and loses it again, and the next next thing you know, he's lost it in four sets. Yeah, I, I I don't I don't think that that you would have found many people wanting to take odds on that match. I mean, it was that was not an upset that anybody was calling. And it, it's at the U.S. Open, and Millman was seen as something of a journeyman, a very likable fellow. And as you saw, he played really well against Djokovic, lost and straight, but made Novak work really hard, rally in, rally out. 20, 30-stroke 20, rallies were routine. And, uh, yeah, I think that was, a, that was quite a come-from-behind effort from Millman, and it took a lot of mental – it took a lot of temerity, too, because, you know, he knew he, who he was playing, and he knew – how much the crowd wanted Roger to win and he just put all that out of his mind and played the the match of his career.
0: Yeah, no one saw it coming except for for one person in my on in my Twitter mentions apparently. That's why Twitter's an amazing place. Whenever you say there well, there's well, no what one
1: What did they what did they what did the person tweet?
0: Basically, I I sent out this tweet that this is pretty funny. I I said, you know, this is this is the this is one of the craziest things I've ever seen. How is Millman able to do this much running? In this kind of humidity, and this guy replies saying, "Of course he can. It's obvious. He grew up in, um uh, you know, so where it's a it's a very humid place in in Australia, Br- Brisbane. Right, right. Anyway, he's saying you should have known. <laughs> I go. oh. I guess I should what have you mean, known. You
1: mean he, he's saying because it was so humid, you know, that that would you know? I he was trying to say did... that
0: I I shouldn't be surprised that Milman. Was was winning. I mean, it was it was one of the, it was crazy.
1: <laughs> well, that doesn't make sense. I know. I well, mean, it's Twitter. It's, we, it's we all, Twitter. We all know the di- different levels of the game, and you know, you and especially being down a set. And as you know, these top guys, even in best of five, their success rate from a setup up. I mean, yeah. Djokovic is about ninety six percent, and the, there's a whole slew of guys, including Roger, who were in the lower nineties. It's it's rare, even from a setup in a major, that they lose. And and he was twice a point away from being two sets up. So, I don't think we could have anybody could in, in really could have logically called that.
0: Right, which is you know. You can find you can find many you know any any opinion in the world it, it exists somewhere on that on that website, Steve.
1: Oh, I believe it. It's, I'm sure it's it's sure it's amazing. Nature, it's something else. The nature of it, but uh, that that's interesting. Now, I'm I, I'm not going <laughs> along with that, but it's yeah. It's interesting that you found somebody that that believes it.
0: Yep. So I found it to be a really enjoyable year, a, a a very memorable year. Any any parting words that that uh, you think you know would would go along with this 2018 season of tennis?
1: No, I just think it's back to what you were saying at the beginning. It's a it was nice to have the big three back. I mean, what happened in 2017 is we had Roger and Rafa divide the four majors. And this time we had them divide the first two and then Djokovic took the last two. So it was really like old times. I mean, because Djokovic is climbing that ladder of history once, once more. And now he's tied Pete Sampras at 14 and he's inevitably going to win a bunch more. The question is, is he going to win enough to pass Rafa and start closing in on Roger. And the the 2019 campaign will be crucial for him because I think, you know, as he's approaching 32, I think that Novak needs
0: two majors
1: out of this coming year. He he really needs more than one. He needs two to really start thinking about catching Roger. And and also, obviously, making sure he passes Rafa. And and that's not going to be as easy as we might think because Rafa maybe wins the French again. But I have to tell you, if I was going to predict right now, and Djokovic met Nadal in the French Open final. All things being equal, I think I would probably take Djokovic.
0: That's quite the way. That's quite the way to go out. I'm. I'm. Um, I would pick Nadal, uh, given given how he was playing uh, when healthy this year. But but
1: and the reason I say that is no disrespect to Rafa we all know he's the greatest clay court of all time but I'm thinking back and, you know they had a couple of really good finals and yep. four setters and then they had that epic five setter in 2013 when the you know when you mentioned David Ferrer and Rafa ended up beating Ferrer in the finals but Novak had, you know was up four three in the fifth and touched the net when he could it was a deuce trying to get to five three in the fifth he was so close before losing at nine seven in the fifth and I feel like he's had a lot of clay court wins over Rafa in his career. And, and I don't think he'd fade physically. And uh, listen, it could be a blockbuster. And I hope if we do get that match, I sure hope it's a final, you know, I mean, at this stage, obviously they would be one, two, I hope they stay one, two, so that if it, if the meeting happens, that it would have to be a final, but I would, I would pick him right now. So you and I have finally found a conflict.
0: There we go. It took, (laughs) it took 45 minutes. <laughs> it's there's it's going to be there are so many exciting things right now. I mean, you just mentioned this this race to to I guess, you know, end with with the most major titles. Roger Federer with 20 right now, um he's in the lead, but but Nadal and Djokovic, that number is is within reach for both of them. I mean, this is only going to get more and more exciting and next time we'll talk, it will be either before or after the Australian Open but but I know um it's going to be a long it's going to be a long off season but people uh people will be will be clamoring for it I think
1: and we still have that Davis Cup final coming up so there's one more last Oh that's duel true. to celebrate this year and we'll see how Chillich p- performs there but uh yeah it's not going to seem like too long an off season Gil, for the these top players after the, the grind of the first oh my 11 goodness. months but they deserve it, and they have it, and they'll all be fresh and eager and ready to go in Australia, and I, I I can't wait to see that major.
0: Yeah, they do deserve it, but but you work very hard too. How how are you celebrating the off season?
1: Oh well, <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 in the process of working on a book on Pete Sampras right now, so I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time during this off season writing writing the book. But, oh wow. Uh, you know, it's sort of a, its sort of looking back on mainly on his 14 majors, but but you know, looking back on the heart of his career, and and uh, I'm I'm re- I'm enjoying that and looking forward to spending a lot of the next few months doing that, and and then I'll still be writing my my weekly columns for Tennis.com, so I I'll have enough to keep me busy, but uh, it, it it's a nice time to sort of pause, reflect, like we just did on the year gone by, and to look forward to what could be a, a really remarkable. 2019 season
0: yes is that exclusive have Have you told anyone that yet the Pete Sampras have I book? told anyone about the book
1: oh I've been, uh, some people know some people know uh I, I've told some people yes okay
0: yes. okay I just you know I just need to make sure you know if we're if we're breaking news here or not
1: well, I mean, to some people, it would be a news. Breaking. Yes, I mean there's that's some for people sure. In my industry that know about it, but not everybody. Right. OK. So, but you asked me what I'm doing. And that's, yeah. that's what I'm doing.
0: I appreciate that. All right. I've I've kept you too long. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. As always, Steve Flink, uh, find his work on tennis dot com. Get his book. Greatest tennis matches of all time. Steve, thanks for coming on again.
1: Gil, thank you. I always enjoy it.
0: Awesome. All right. All right. That has been, whoops, it always sounds terrible when I turn it off. All right, so that was Steve Flink. Went over the season, a lot of exciting things. Um, We'll be talking to Chris Lewitt. That will drop late Saturday night. He was um, my former coach. He now coaches um, in Vermont. He has his academy, the Chris Lewitt Tennis Academy. He's the author of two books, The Secrets of Spanish Tennis, And I believe it's called the technique, the tennis technical Bible or something along those lines. Um, So I think you guys will enjoy that conversation until that, until then, rather, don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks, that's what our podcast, People Are The Worst, brings you
1: with each episode. I'm Rachel.